Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Knowledge at HEC Hard News Podcast. Daniel Brown here, I'm Chief Editor in the School's Communications Department. Today we preview the challenges that the COP27 Global Climate Summit must answer. At COP27, we need to get much more granular about solutions to the needs of the most vulnerable communities. We need to ensure collective action at COP27 because this determines the life of my generation and future generations. It is important that all the parties um, get to join the conversation. It includes not just private sector and civil society and governments and uh, multilateral development banks, but youth are extremely important in this equation. The COP27 summit begins on November the 6th in Egypt and lasts 12 days. It's exactly a year after COP26 in Glasgow, but a year is a long time and challenges have piled up. A world divided by war in Europe, a year where we've seen an acceleration of climate changes. The crises seem to pile up. In this light, we'll be discussing the COP27's agenda and objectives with two guests. Igor Shishlov, Academic Co-Director for HEC's Climate and Business Certificate, and Shiraz Morebayi, Co-President of ESPER, a student association here devoted to sustainability. Let's start with you, Igor. You will be attending the first week of this summit. To be clear, you're going as a senior consultant for the Perspectives Climate Group, working on policies in developing countries. What are your principal objectives? Yes, uh, right. Well, indeed, I'm going to COP27 as part of the delegation of Perspectives Climate Group, uh, which is a research and consultancy firm with headquarters in Germany. We work on a range of topics uh, related to climate policies, uh, climate finance, adaptation, etc. And um, we are organizing a number of side events at the COP. Uh, myself, I'm working particularly on the issue of public finance and how different public finance institutions are still supporting, unfortunately, uh, with uh, large amounts of money, investments in fossil fuel-related uh, infrastructure. In some cases, it is enabling, you know, development of new fossil fuel supply, which is, of course, incompatible with uh, one half degree trajectory. And uh, over the past two years, we've been particularly looking at the topic of export finance and how export credit agencies are still providing billions of U.S. dollars uh, in support of uh, fossil fuel investments and fossil fuel exports. And uh, we've been looking at how these institutions can be reformed uh, in order to redirect uh, this public support from fossil fuels to uh, clean energy infrastructure. Uh, we've done a number of uh, studies on several countries and at the COP we're going to present some of the results of our research and hopefully be able to exchange with other researchers and organizations working uh, on this topic. Shiraz Morebayi, as I said earlier, your association has been involved in these climate issues for a while and you'll be closely following COP27. What will be your association's approach to it? Yeah, so our association will be doing a lot of communication, uh, especially on social media, but also on campus around COP27. So we plan on relaying information, uh, be it 
report or analysis of COP27. We're also planning on doing a series of posts on social media debunking some allegations made during the negotiations uh, between states. So, for example, when uh, Igor was talking about the International Energy Agency recommendations of stopping uh, new uh, fossil fuel extractions. So those are maybe things we want to communicate about when the world leaders make statements that go against that and against that expertise. And also we want to organize after the COP27 a conference, a round table, if you wish, with activists and scientists discussing the results and the outcome of that COP. Igor, how do you see this approach by uh, HEC students, uh, some of whom uh, are following your courses and are familiar with your work? Yeah, well, I think it's uh, it's, it's a great initiative. And uh, what I can say is that I've definitely seen a, a big change in mindset of young people. I myself studied at HEC more than 10 years ago. And back in the days, uh, I think climate change was still kind of a niche topic in in business schools uh, it was more reserved for you know corporate social responsibility discussions uh, whereas now it's really become a central issue a strategic issue and we see that there is you know increasing uh, demand from all stakeholders for climate change education programs and talking about the youth movements i think they are playing really a crucial role in advancing the climate policy agenda uh, over the past years, we've seen Greta Thunberg, of course, but not only her, uh, many other young leaders and activists who really galvanized the public and sort of created this moral imperative around climate change, because obviously it's this generation that is going to live through all the climate change impacts. And I think it's having a, a strong impact on, on the climate policy debates. It has impact on uh, public opinion, the results of different uh, green parties in different countries, I think is quite telling. And really, I, I can only support these initiatives. And I think it's, it's, it's great that the students are engaging uh, so actively. Shiraz? Uh, yeah, I think there is definitely raising awareness among uh, my generation, but also older generation, because we are not the only ones who are going to live the effects of climate change, depletion of natural resources, biodiversity loss, and so on. These are things that are going, going to happen in 10, 20 years. So it's not only the ones that are young now that are going to live and have to live through that. Um, so I think there is definitely some kind of a global network of activists that is emerging, especially around these global summits, because as Igor said, what's really interesting is not so much the negotiations, but what's happening around it and all the, the side meetings uh, that foster new ideas and new cooperation. So I think there is definitely a momentum and uh, events like that can gather momentum and spur debates around these issues. Uh, but I think a, a lot of the people in my generation, although they are aware of the problem, uh, there is often a lot of despair and distrust towards institutions and most people, most young people, and not only the rich or educated one are very wary of such institutions and don't really believe in them. So does that awareness 
translate into a call for action, I'm not sure. More degrees will drastically change the world. And the world are dealing with record extreme heat. Storms have been causing deadly floods. You could have mass melting of ice sheets. Our planet needs our help. And we're running out of time. That's where you come in. You, the decision makers, the game changers, the forward thinkers, the first responders, you who make things happen and get things moving. You can help give the earth a fighting chance. And the time to do so is right now. Igor Shishlov, uh, not for the first time, finance talks uh, could be tricky at the COP27, given the global crises uh, experienced since Glasgow. What is your analysis of what could happen? Yeah, well, I think in general, I would echo what Shiraz was saying about a certain level of distrust or maybe frustration about the international climate process. There's definitely an issue related to finance. At COP26, it was officially acknowledged that the climate finance objectives were not achieved. You know, there is this 100 billion per year objective to provide mitigation and adaptation finance to developing countries. This was not achieved. It was reported that we are standing now at around 80 billion. But this is um, reporting by the OECD, and there are several NGOs that are criticizing these numbers saying that even these numbers are actually overestimated because there is some <clears throat> double counting with overseas development aid. You know, uh, loans are counted at their face value, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the crucial part of the process now is really to see developed countries really putting money on the table and especially for adaptation because adaptation finance has been really falling short of the, of the needs and we've seen the increasing amount of uh, natural uh, disasters uh, related to climate change around the world. You know, there's been uh, flooding in, in Pakistan, uh, hurricanes, etc. And uh, historically, uh, finance for adaptation only had a very small share of uh, international climate finance. And that, that's, that's, of course, a big problem. So that's going to be a big topic. And another related topic is um, so-called loss and damage. Uh, discussions. So essentially, reparations to uh, countries that are affected by climate change from those who are uh, responsible for that, because the, the big problem with climate change is that those who suffer the most are not those who are historically responsible uh, for causing climate change. And yes, you mentioned Australia. There's been a, a landmark court ruling uh, earlier this year in Australia, where a group of people from Torres Strait Islands essentially brought the Australian government to court and the court ruled that indeed the Australian government violated their human rights by not taking sufficient climate action, which uh, in part results in the damages and the losses they are suffering due to climate change, due to uh, increasing disasters and sea level rise. So this is really becoming a critical topic and I think it will be one of the key themes at, uh, at this COP. There are also sessions, Shiraz, that will directly concern you. One is on the future generations, another on civil society. How have these, these summits evolved in the past years? As I said, I think the civil society is playing a more and more important role in the summits and around those summits. But it's true that since it's taking place in Egypt this year, in the United Arab Emirates next year, one can fear for a lack 
of presence of civil society, NGOs and so on, uh, because uh, personal freedoms, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly are not uh, guaranteed in those countries. And I think we can see that at the beginning of the COP right now, where side events without government officials are forbidden for the first day, we can see that there is a problem um, when expressing those opinions and those alternative opinions. So I fear for civil society when talks are only between uh, officials and state officials. So I think we can be pretty fearful of the uh, evolutions of uh, the implication of civil society in those talks. Yeah, there has been uh, criticism, uh, Igor, that is starting to come out. A quite well-known article in The Guardian by Naomi Klein, a well-known activist, uh, concerning the possible whitewashing of the Egyptian government in terms of its uh, image through this summit. Your response? Yeah, well, I think it's an elephant in the room. Uh, We all know that Egypt is not a democratic state and uh, there's really very uh, limited space for civil society organizations, for activists, including climate and uh, eco-activists in the country. There are many activists that are actually uh, imprisoned in Egypt right now. And there is this new law that prohibits receiving, uh, for example, grants and donations from abroad, uh, which really complicates the work of of many civil society organizations uh, in the country. Indeed, many of those activists will essentially not be able to participate in the COP and will not have their voice there. And that's why I think it's extremely important that activists from from abroad who who travel to COP keep this in mind and serve as as a voice for those people who cannot attend the COP and who are uh, deprived from their voice. Generally, the the community of civil society organizations stopped short of calling for boycotting uh, the COP, probably because still we think that the potential positive outcomes that can uh, come out of the COP, they outweigh the potential effects of of boycotting. But still, I think we we do have to keep this in mind. And it's really a, a very critical sort of political backdrop of this COP. The effects of climate change this year. Egypt will be hosting the 27th UN Climate Change Conference in November. But right before the major event, Human Rights Watch has shed some light on how the Egyptian government has harassed the environmentalists in the country. And this through intimidation and arrests. The Environment Director at Human Rights Watch confirmed that the Egyptian government has imposed various obstacles that have debilitated local environment groups, forcing some activists into exile and others to steer clear of all kind of important work. Human rights watch Climate change will not be stopped by individuals using fewer plastic bags or making more journeys by bike. It will take a concerted and urgent effort by governments, institutions and businesses across the globe. As we prepare to launch our toolkit for businesses to address this defining challenge of our time, the eight schools in the Business Schools for Climate Leadership Coalition held a series of public conversations. 
Turning to uh, HEC and uh, its involvement, it has been part of the Business Schools for Climate Leadership, which came out in uh, the last COP26 uh, with quite a splash. This is a unique partnership between eight of Europe's leading business schools to help present the issues and also involve the students' uh, population as future leaders. What steps has the school taken since it was initiated? What we've done over the past year at HEC is we launched a number of climate-related initiatives. I think the, the flagship initiative is this new program called Climate and Business Certificate, which is a five-week uh, interdisciplinary program, kind of a specialization track at the end of uh, Master, MBA, and EMBA studies. And uh, the program essentially is aimed at preparing students for you know, navigating all the complexities of the ecological transition. And it is aimed not only for people who are going to work directly on climate issues, but for anyone, you know, entering in business in, in all different sectors, because we believe that they, uh, they must be aware of these issues and they must integrate climate change considerations in their business decision-making, in their investment decision-making at all levels. So I'm quite happy and encouraged to see that business schools are finally catching up uh, with the climate agenda and are really trying now to integrate climate change in the, in the core of their curricula. Shiraz Morebali, a second-year student here at HEC. How would you like to see a business school's approach to climate-related issues evolve in, in time for the COP28, which, as you reminded us earlier, is in the United Arab Emirates in, in a year's time? Um, so climate change and uh, the environmental crisis as a whole calls for profound change in the way we teach business, uh, not only through optional courses uh, that we do have in our in our program uh, around environmental issues, but in the core courses of business schools, that is marketing, finance, strategy, and so on, economics, of course. Researchers, teachers need to rethink the theoretical foundations of the courses and they they need to change how they think about business decisions and evaluations supply change macroeconomics and this really uh, calls for a critical thinking about those teachings and that research field and that study field and i think in the core courses uh, at hec we are not doing enough teachers are not doing enough to integrate the climate issues to their courses because it is seen as a side issue as, as a field climate business esg in finance social and environmental responsibility for firms it is seen as a side issue and not a core issue that should be taken into account across all business decisions and that in my courses i do not see that's business. And then there's policy making. And Shiraz, uh, you had an internship uh, at the French Ministry of Ecological Transition, and which gave you a, a small insight into governmental approaches uh, to these issues. What did it teach you? I mean, how would you like to see it evolve? What struck me during my internship 
was the lack of coherence and communication around climate issues and environmental issues as a whole. Uh, that is, there is a lack of coherence between the different goals of different ministries. So the Ministry for the Ecological Transition might have uh, goals concerning climate targets, artificializations of soil and so on, but those goals contradict the goals or of the Ministry of Finance, for example, concerning budget or economic growth. So what struck me was really a lack of coherence and policy making and a global transversal uh, vision. And I thought that was really lacking. Of course, policy making is a slow process, but in the evaluation of effective policies, I found there was a lot of quantitative evaluation and not so much room for critical thinking about the politics that are at the heart of that policy making. And I thought this was a very technocratic point of view and approach to climate change and that a global ambitious vision uh, was lacking. Did you want to add anything, uh, Igor? Yeah, I, I think it's it's very interesting what Shiraz, you're saying, because I think it also reflects the problem that we have in terms of long-term goals versus short-term policymaking and really aligning our immediate policies with, uh, with the long-term goals. Because many countries uh, have now announced uh, net zero objectives, but in fact, not many of them really uh, have put in place uh, policies that would put them on track to achieve these objectives. Well, uh, in Europe, obviously, there is now an intermediate target of uh, reducing emissions by 55% in 2030. But overall, climate and energy policies are still not fully aligned with these targets. So how these uh, reforms in taxation policies, in energy policies, uh, subsidies, etc., etc., would unfold will really define whether uh, whether we manage to achieve these objectives. And of course, we are now living through a very complicated period. There is an unfolding energy crisis following the, the Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine. The energy security considerations are now uh, on top of the political agenda. And we see that it leads to sort of backsliding on some of the climate commitments. There are in some places like Germany, they're reopening uh, coal-fired power plants, which are, of course, the most polluting ones. There are new permits for oil drilling uh, in the U.S., so all these uh, sort of measures to address the short-term energy uh, crisis, they are undermining our long-term climate objectives. And I think uh, we, we should not forget about the long-term targets when we do policies. So I, I, I fully agree with Shiraz on that. Those are long-term objectives and priorities. There's also a look back, and 2022 marks 30 years exactly uh, since the Earth Summit uh, in Rio de Janeiro. Igor uh, Shishlov, uh, how far have things evolved or not since that landmark event? Well, I would say that uh, our understanding of uh, the climate system has advanced uh, considerably since 1992. And if back in 1992, although the overall climate science was already quite clear, there were still some uncertainties. We still were not uh, sure about the exact uh, objectives in terms of temperature, potential emissions trajectories, etc., etc. So the international climate policy was uh, still sort of revolving around this incremental change 
approach. You know, for example, the Kyoto Protocol required emission reductions of 5% and did not include developing countries. Whereas over the past years, we, we really understood where we're heading, the disaster, and what has to be done uh, to avoid the disaster. So hence, we had the Paris Agreement that <clears throat> includes all countries, and hence we have the globally accepted temperature objectives and net zero objectives. Now, the question is, are we really on track? And the answer is, of course, no. If we put together all commitments of countries in the form of national determined contributions under the Paris Agreement, uh, we're definitely not on track to two degrees and let alone one and a half degrees. So the implementation and putting the money where the mouth is, is, is really critical. And uh, this will be a critical decade. A final word uh, from you, uh, Shiraz Morebayi. Uh, first of all, how do you balance this engagement that uh, you and fellow students have uh, towards the ESPER association that you're involved in with your studies? And what kind of response do you have from fellow students to uh, your campaigns? In terms of uh, balancing my work in this association with my studies, I find it hard sometimes to study, well, finance and marketing, uh, given my activism and uh, my thoughts on such subjects and like the upheaval in those subjects that I call for. But I think it, it, it's interesting to get to know how a system works if you want to change it. But I, I'd like to see more courses at HEC telling us how to change the system and not just how to play by the rules of such systems. So I'm trying to balance it out. And as for my fellow students, I find that growing a part of uh, our program, so the Grand École program, but also uh, throughout all programs, a growing part of students is concerned uh, with those issues, but that does not necessarily alter their career choices or their global visions they see it as a side problem. So I think there is a growing population of students who are asking for changes and who are really convinced that global change is needed and who are really engaged uh, with those issues. But I think that the majority of the population of students at HEC does not think that it will directly affect them through the business decisions they will have to make and in their private lives. So I think there is still a lot of room for progress and for convincing my fellow students that it is in fact a crucial and a topical issue. A delicate uh, balancing act. Uh, my thanks to both of you, uh, Shiraz and uh, Igor. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thank you both. A knowledge at HEC podcast. Yes, my thanks goes to Igor Shishlov, HEC Research Associate, who previously worked at the Institute for Climate Economics. There he conducted research on climate policy and finance. And a hearty thanks goes to Shiraz Morebayi, co-president of ESPER. This HEC student association promotes ecology and social solidarity economy on the Jouy en Josas campus. That's it for this Knowledge at HEC Hard News podcast. Tune in again next month when we'll discuss more current affairs with top professors from HEC Paris. Meanwhile, your comments are always welcome. Send them to brownd, that's in one word, at hec.fr. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>